0: I want you to imagine, this is just a story, okay, that there's a woman who received an inheritance from her parents and one of the things she got was a jewel, okay, or some jewelry. And at that time she didn't really think much of it and so she sort of threw it to the side. But years later she was sort of digging through her closet and she found this jewel and she thought, you know, let me see what this is worth, let me see, uh, get this appraised and so she takes it to a jeweler. And the jeweler looks at it and he takes out his little lens thing and he's staring at it. And as he's staring at it, he's looking at all the different facets of it, all the colors beaming from it. And he comes to this realization where this is something of price, this is priceless, this is something of great value, great worth. That you can't find jewels like this anymore. You don't even know. We don't even know the technique of how to make it. There's something so precious about this. And in response to that, his heart starts pounding. He stands up. He can't help but sort of just be moving because he sees this jewel is of great worth. And so the lady eventually finds out. She's like, wow, I had no idea. I was living as if this thing was worthless. And so her life was unchanged, but the moment she found the great worth of this jewel, suddenly she's realizing, man, everything's going to change. Now, at our church, it's one of our convictions that Christianity happens as you stare at the jewel that is God. As you ascribe great worth to him, you may come in, I don't know what this is all about, I don't really think, I don't ascribe, I don't give great worth, which is worship, where we get the word worship, which is just another way, it's in its origin, it's worth-ship, it's ascribing worth to something, great worth. You may come in like, I don't really know anything about this, but what we want you to see is first the jewel. We want you to see God as you look through the lens, as you look through the gospel, or as you look through the word of God, you see God. And as a response to that, then you stand up. Your heart starts beating faster. You start lifting up your hands. You start worshiping. That is so important that everything we do at this church is driven by realization, by worship. Why am I talking about this? Because, this is personal for me, because let's say in this illustration, you took out the jewel. You take it out. And you're still trying to live a certain type of life. You're trying to force yourself to stand up be excited, share with everyone about um, this story or whatever it is, you're trying to get your heart moving, it doesn't work. And for the longest time, Christianity for me was a Christless Christianity or a Christianity without God. You're trying to do all these different things, but what does it lead to? You're just tired, you're just burdened, you just fall into legalism where you're just trying to follow all these laws and rules, but you're not staring at God. One of the things we need to learn how to do again and again and again is just stare at the jewel. You see the worth of God, you just stare. You meditate on that. And you come to realization and in response, in view of his mercies, in view of who God is and what he's done, then you move. That's when Christianity is much more joyful. That's when true worship occurs because you've ascribed ultimate value. All of us worship something and we ascribe ultimate value to something, but it's when we transfer what we're worshipping and we instead of ascribing ultimate value to this, we ascribe it now to who God is. That's what the Christian life is. That's what it means to worship. You see God and then you respond in worship. You ascribe ultimate worth to him. And so what I want to do today, this is part of our conviction series, and this is because, number one, this passage we're going to study today is probably one of the most meaningful passages for me. It was very simple. I was living this legalistic, pharisaical pharisaical life, still a recovering pharisee, and I saw who God is. And that's what started to change my life. You want to know what the most practical thing we could talk about at church? It's God. It's God. Like in seminary or in schools, you have these theology departments where it's about God. Then you have these practical theology departments where it's about preaching or leading, when really there's no separation of those two things. The most practical thing we could talk about is not how to save money, It's not how to do this or do that. It's let's stare at God. That's the most important thing that you need to hear. And so I hope right now, I want to just stare at the jewel, stare at the jewel through God's word, and I hope we'll see who he is, ascribe ultimate worth to him, and we'll respond and worship. Okay? So let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight, says In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's the year that Isaiah pinpoints historically, this is when this happened. Isaiah, we don't know if it's a physical transportation to the temple or if he's having a vision. He has a vision of the king. And just to give some background to this story, this happens uh, in, the, in the death of the king. Uzziah was a king where he became king at age 16. And for 52 years, he reigned over Judah, and it was one of the most prosperous times. Here was a king who was so competent. He was an army general. He was an expert administrator, an engineer, a gardener, a shepherd. He had it all. And so people had grown up in this comfortable time where he represented everything He represented security. He represented comfort, safety, prosperity. That's all they had known. When he was in his 20s, like, man, he's going to be the greatest king ever. Like Uzziah in his 30s, you're doing amazing things. In his 40s, he's taking over. He's prospering the entire nation. In his 50s, you're going to finish so well. And then when he's in his 60s, Uzziah, what happened? And if you want to look it up, if you want some homework in Second Chronicles chapter 26 in verse 16 it says when he was strong he grew proud to his destruction when he grew strong he grew proud to his destruction and he committed a great sin and so how did his legacy end people would walk by that house and be like hey there's Uzziah he has leprosy he has leprosy and then he died And it's in this moment where security has fallen apart, everything has fallen apart, where Uzziah, in the moment of crisis, he sees the king. And I think there's already a point there where there's something about when you're in a moment of crisis where it seems like God is screaming at you. He's trying to get your attention, whether it's in the praise, whether it's in the worship, Whether it's in the singing, whether it's in the word of God, in the moment of crisis, you see the king. And if that's where you are right now, here's what you need to do you need to zoom out because you have a choice of what you're going to focus on. You could focus on your circumstances, and what happens when you focus on something is that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Or you could focus and zoom out of your circumstances. And you zoom in on who God is, and then you see that he gets bigger. What you need right now in the moment of crisis, more than anything, is you need to see the king. And what kind of king is he? That's exactly what Isaiah says. I saw the Lord, and he's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Notice he's not standing like by his side. He's not. They're not on the same level. He's not sitting cross legged or, you know, he's not just chilling or laying down next to Uzziah. He is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Now, is that how we see the king? When you think of the word God, what do you think about? Is he high and lifted up? Is he your king or is he your secretary? someone who's there to assist with your life is he an accessory something you just add on to your life or a hobby just something you do on the side is he like a consultant where you go to him and then you ignore his advice after he gives you advice or is he your king high and lifted up is your God too small High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. And I always think when I read passages like Exodus 24, where the elders of Israel, they get to see like a vision of the king and they start talking about the pavement, the pavement of jewels and gold and all this stuff. And here, Isaiah, he's like, he's talking about the robe, <laughs> okay? He's talking about the robe. I'm like, Isaiah, you know, tell us what was it like to see the king? He's all, and he's like, his robe... It was filling the temple. The train of his robe was filling the temple. And I, this is just how I imagine the scene. And This is how I imagine most people when they see God in scriptures. They get a glimpse of who God is. And I'm guessing he's on his knees on the floor. And he looks up and he sees fold after fold after fold filling the temple. And the train of his robe is supposed to represent his glory. Okay? Today, it's like a silly thing where it's, you see, like, anyone know what the Guinness Book of World Records is for the longest wedding train? It's like this silly game. They've made it. You know, it's three miles, okay? Three miles in France, some city, I don't know, doesn't matter, known for creating silk. They created a three-mile train, um, which 70 people had to carry with the bride, all right? This actually defeats my purpose a little. I'm trying to show it's about to show the glory of God, that God is glorious. There's something where Isaiah looks up and he looks up and he's on the floor because he sees God on the throne. He sees God's glory, and in response. After that, above him stood the seraphim, and these are flaming like angels, flaming creatures. We don't know what they look like, but seraphim means flaming ones. And they have six wings, with two they flew, with two they covered their feet, and with two they covered their eyes. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is God. And what does this idea of holiness mean? Okay? This is like Christianese. We, we talk about this word holiness, and typically what we think about when we think of the word holy is something to do with like purity. Like this guy is holier than thou. That's how we use it. And that's true. That is true of God, that he is morally pure, but that's actually secondary. The idea of holiness is this idea better described as transcendence. It's his transcendence. He is set apart. He's in a different league. He is in a class of his own. He is not simply a little bit better than us. He's not a little bit up the scale from us. He breaks the scale. He's in a totally different category. He's set apart. For example, um, holiness is in the backdrop of all of his other attributes. God's love is a holy love because it's completely unlike ours. We love in response to the loveliness of an object or a person. God loves simply because he loves. His love is a holy love. Or we read Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, talking about God's wisdom, right? In God's wisdom, he's talking about my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than yours. I am holy. My wisdom is holy. Do you guys see that? So, God's mercy or God's love or God's power, God's wisdom, all of that is holy. And that's what makes God God. That everything about Him is in a different level, is in a different class. That it's a holy love. He's not just a little bit more loving than us, He breaks the scale. And there's something terrifying about that when we put someone in a different category. I mean, it's a silly example, but I remember um, my first crush in kindergarten. Okay, ironically, her name was Grace. Okay, which is currently my uh, is my wife's name. Okay, um, and you know when you like a girl, there's something where it's like. You know, you just see her in a different category than all the other girls. She's in a different league. The other girls, they don't, they can't compare to her. And there's something about her where you want to run towards her. But there's also something about her where you want to run away from her. Right? Do you guys know what I'm saying? Like, I had the same crush on this girl for like three years. And I never talked to her for like three years. But I always wanted to be near her. At the same time, I was terrified. Because like, dude, she's, in my mind, basically I had set her apart. Okay? There was something different about her. And when we're talking about God is holy, we're saying he's set apart. He's transcendent. Why does this matter? Why is this so important? All the time I'm talking to people and this is how I counsel myself. I'm I'm figuring out, man, I'm so anxious. I'm struggling with all these different things. And I'll talk to people I'm counseling about and they're just like, man, I'm struggling. I don't know how to deal with this. And they have forgotten that God is holy. I forget that God is holy, holy holy. He's not just a little bit more wise than me. He's in a different league. His love is holy. His wisdom is holy for those of you who don't understand what he's doing. His power is a holy power. It's transcendent. You need to see that. We need to see that God is holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory just means this idea of weightiness. You drop a huge boulder into a pond and what it does, it's weighty. It comes into its life and it it, it moves everything. And what God does when he comes into your life as your king, As your Lord, the Lord of hosts, if you see him as scripture portrays him, he will come into your life and he won't be an accessory. His glory will drop into your life and it will rearrange everything. And one of the responses this is just a side note, but I can't imagine. This is like the heavenly praise team. You guys see that? The angels are singing, they're praising God, holy, holy, holy. And last week I was just reciting lyrics, I was sound checking, the praise team was all making fun of me because I'm singing it in this emotionless, like dead voice, right? But I can't imagine them singing it like that. There is something, I bet there's power to it. And I don't want to jump on this too much because it's a side point, but I, I wonder if there's as much damage caused in the church by overly emotional worship. Maybe there's just as much damage or more by emotionless worship. We're seeing or praise or worship overall. We've eliminated emotion. But I think when something, this is how I test when I read the Bible. D- does this mean something to me? Is this gotten into my heart? Is when you read it and you meditate on it so much that there's something in you that wants to sing it. Because when something becomes part of you, like a song, there's something powerful about putting something to melody. Where you you just start tapping your feet, your body starts moving. You want to dance, or you just want to move, or it's just part of you, and you just sing and you're humming songs. That's how it should be with our worship. It's when you see it, and then your body moves. And God wants our mind, our heart, our body, our strength. He wants all of us in spirit and in truth. And if you look in the Psalms, people sing a new song once they see God. That's just the natural response that you know this is not just head knowledge. And some of us that are thinkers, we got to work extra hard at this. you got to work extra hard at this. I'm not a thinker. I'm a feeler. But, and so it's like I love like singing by myself at least. okay. But that's one way I need to get God's truth into me. You need to meditate. You need to focus on this because if you are seeing who God is, you will praise him. And I want to be more emotional, not less. I want to get more of my passion for God. Like some churches and some places you've been around the church circuit long enough it's like a it's like a carnival when you go there right it's just like whoa what's going on here right it's a little bit too much it's a little out of order which scripture calls us to have some sense of order and worship but others it could feel like a funeral it could feel like a funeral i'm just like man we're singing to the lamb of god who was slain revelation is singing that do we sing in this dead you know i'm not saying just sing but i want you to see the King. And raise our expectations and not just get satisfied with a mental exercise when we come into worship. And if you're not singing in service, then be meditating throughout the week. And I pray and pray that you'll be singing a new song throughout the week. Giving God everything. Because that's what he's worth. It all starts, though, with what do you think about when you think of God? Is he holy, holy, holy? And this is, in some ways, you know, we can know God. But when we're talking about God, Isaiah, I'm like, why don't you tell us more than the robe? But what do you say or how do you describe something that is indescribable? There is something about this passage and passages where it's just like, it's a little bit frustrating that we don't get more details on what God is like because that's what god is like he is indescribable and language eventually runs out i was uh with uh, youth kids like two weeks ago and we we're doing exercise where i was like i'm a non-christian or i'm new to church and i'm coming in i want you to to explain the gospel to me and so they're doing it and they did a great job they did a great job um and um but there was one part where we got to the Trinity and they're like, oh, it's God. And I was like, I don't understand. And then I don't understand what you guys are saying. But thankfully, they didn't ask me to describe it because I was like, I really can't do much better than you guys did, right? They didn't ask me. I was like, I pretend like I know some better way. But really, I was like, I don't know how to describe the Trinity in a better way than you did because that's what makes God, God. That he's transcendent. He's indescribable. That he's holy. If you're in circumstances right now where it's just difficult, what you need to see is that God is on the throne. Uzziah the king is dead. But the king is still on the throne. And from here on, it's like this Hollywood movie where it's like the whole foundations of the threshold shook at the voice him called, and the house is filled with smoke. But the one who's shaking the most now is Uzzi- uh, is Isaiah. Woe is me. What does that mean? Woe is me. That just means cursed am I, damned am I. For my eyes have seen the King, the Holy One. I've seen infinit- His infinitude while I see my finiteness. I see His greatness while I see how small I am. He sees the King. And then he sees himself. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Not only does he see just how small and finite he is, he sees how unclean he is. This is the prophet who in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5 had gone around saying, Woe to you people, woe to you people, cursed are you, damned are you. He comes in and he says, woe is me. And that's what happens when you see God. It's easy for us to compare ourselves on a holiness standard to those around us. But how about when you look up? Like my, uh, my son, Micah, he, uh, his, my daughter, Tabby, she wants to play with dolls and, you know, she has a teddy and things like that. My son, Micah, wants to carry this ball around, right? And so I bought him a little basketball hoop, right? If I wanted to, I could actually destroy my son in basketball. You know, I will destroy him 1,000 to zero. There will be no competition. I can also do that with my daughter Tabby. I'll destroy them. Okay? And I could go around feeling, yeah, look at me, I'm all great. But let's say I'm on the basketball court and then I'll use LeBron as an example of greatness just because we're in L.A., right? Okay, and, and my favorite player, Kawhi Leonard, abandoned my team. But, um, so I don't know what to do anymore in basketball. <laughs> But um, let's say I'm on the basketball court and then, you know, I'm thinking I'm all great. I destroyed all my middle school girls when I was a youth pastor. I could beat them a thousand to zero as well, including the boys who are high school because no high school boys seem to play sports these days, you know. And then LeBron comes in. He's like, I want to play you one on one. Now, if I'm smart at that moment, I'm running up the stairs or I'm leaving the parking lot. I'm putting my keys in the ignition. I'm getting out of there. Because if that's the standard of greatness, who am I? Woe is me. I don't deserve to be on the same court. I am not in his league. And when I see God, who am I to think I'm all better than everyone else? Woe is me. For I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you guys ever had that moment where you've seen yourself? You see the King, you see yourself. One time I went to a retreat. This was when I was in a youth group, and um, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, we go out, and we're going to take our sleeping bags, and we're going to go out to, like, this hill area and do stargazing because... Of course, you're supposed to do stuff like that at retreats. And on the way there, I, I fall into like some dirt and then I don't think about it and I just go out. But on the way back to the retreat center, what happens is that retreat center is where all the light is. And as you get closer and closer to the light, I look down and it's like, ugh, I'm filthy. But I didn't really see that until I got into the light. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Where we've had this moment where we've mourned. We saw our sin. We thought we were all that. We saw our sin. For me, it's just getting down on my knees at this one hotel. It was like a a college retreat and just weeping over my sin. And this section of Isaiah chapter six is the one that so much of the prosperity gospel or so much of pop psychology wants to eliminate. We want to eliminate any mourning, any feelings of guilt, any feelings of sorrow. We we don't want to do any of that. We want to blame shift it all away. Or if you go into certain churches, the prosperity gospel church, they'll use words like abundance and harvest and plenty and prosperity and joy. But the pathway to joy in Scripture is through repentance. It's through sorrow over your sins. And this is true of Christians and non-Christians. The way you come to faith is you repent of your sins. That just means you mourn over your sins and you let go of your sins and you turn in faith to something greater, which is Christ. That's the same process by which we're saved. That's the same process by which we're sanctified or we grow in our faith, where every day you're mourning over your sins, but then you're turning in faith. You're fixing your eyes on the Savior. It's so easy for us to short-circuit the repentance process. For those of us who grew up in a grace-filled church, rightfully, it's so easy for us to think and just move on, and we just, we just, oh, I sinned, not a big deal, I'm forgiven. But we need to mourn, we need to think about our sin, we need to face up to our sin. And then, we stare at our Savior. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And then one of the seraphim flew to him with his burning tongue. Just imagine you're at a barbecue and there's these burning coals, burning coals. And so he says, um, the, the angel puts it to his lips, which makes me like cringe a little if you think about it in real life. But what do you think Isaiah is thinking at this moment where this angel, that's a flaming angel, is coming to him with his tongue? He just said, I'm a sinner, I'm damned, I'm cursed. And then this angel comes to him, he's thinking, game over. I can't run away from God. I can't escape from God. What else am I going to do? It's, it's, I'm done for. You want to know what the three, I think the three most beautiful words a person can hear? It's, I forgive you. I forgive you. forgiveness meaning i've i've paid the penalty i'll absorb the cost behold this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for you look at the beginning of your life to the end of your life and in your weakness all of your sins past present and future Isaiah stares at his sin. He faces up to his sin and then he receives the grace of God. That's the process. You see who God is. You see yourself. And then you see God's grace. And at that moment, once you've seen the king, you will say, here am I. Send me here am I, send me. And when I read this, I don't think it was like, Who's, who am I going to send? Uh, Isaiah, will you do this? You know, God finally speaks or we see him speaking here and he's like, who, uh, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I don't get the sense that God is having to coerce or twist the arms of this guy to do it. You only have to do that when people have not worshiped. Okay, some people you may need to ask them, and you know you just sort of see where they're at because they need opportunity, but you don't have to coerce them to do it. Here am I. Send me. going back to the basketball illustration, I always think it's sort of jacked up when I look at the NBA or like sports. And there's always like the athletes, they, you know, after a timeout or at the beginning of a timeout, they get all their sweaty towel and they just throw the towel behind them, right? Just, all right? I'm like, dude, just hand it to the kid, right? All right? Or there's the kids that go and they clean the sweat on, I, they look so happy doing it, right? And I, you know, there's a level where it's like, dude, that's gross, right? am they're just like, you know, but for if you're in the NBA or if you're like a bystander, you're on, you're on like uh, the front row or you get to be there and you, you're like gladly catching LeBron James's sweat towel, right? You're just like, dude, give me that thing, right? <laughs> give me your sweaty jersey that's gross, right? That I'm gonna have to wash. You want to be like, it's a privilege to serve greatness. Like, I don't think anybody would have ever said, like, you know, man, I, I'm the servant of Winston Churchill or I'm his secretary or whoever you want to use, right? James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a society that is obsessed with titles, manager, CEO, CFO, managing partner, whatever it is, James describes himself first as a servant of Jesus. And that's his greatest title. James, the half brother who grew up with Jesus, saying, I'm a servant. Why is that not a bad thing? It's not a bad thing if you see how big God is, that's a privilege. Here am I, send me. And so you're not being coerced wherever it is, whether it's across the world or in your neighborhood. You're not having to be coerced because you've seen the king. Here I am, send me. And notice God doesn't send him on this light and pleasant and comfortable mission. Right? Right? He sends him and go and preach to this unthankful people that their hearts are going to be closed off and no one's going to listen to you and you're going to be a missionary without any success or that's how it's going to feel to you. He sends him on this uncomfortable mission. By Isaiah, I'm sure he was afraid, but he just saw the king. It's easy for us, you know, we can say... Uh, Like, I'll follow God if this or if this or if this. But there was this movie, like, a couple decades ago called The Stepford Wives. And in The Stepford Wives, there's a bunch of husbands that are unhappy because their wives keep nagging at them. And so what they decide to do, there's actually two versions of it. In the original version, they, like, it's really dark. They like kill their wives and re- rebuild new wives. Okay. And the new version, they just put like chips on, which is like, I guess, like friendlier or something like that. A little more audience friendly, right? They put chips on them. So their wives only know how to say the words, yes, dear. Yes, dear. So their wives will no longer disagree with them. Like, I don't want, I don't like this. It's not pleasant. I don't want to go through it. And so I'm going to make you a step for God. Just agree with everything I say. But Isaiah had seen the king. And let's zoom out a bit, okay? When you zoom into your circumstances, you get so caught up in, and you get anxious. Um, like for me, I think everyone that knows me knows I'm a cynic, okay? I'm conservative, I get super caught up in details. I'm very detail-oriented. I'm sort of adverse to risk and all these different things. And I'm afraid. And so often insecure, so often afraid. How do you handle that? This is where you need In order to battle fear in your life, what I'm saying, let me summarize it for us. When I'm saying you need to see the king, what I'm saying, another way, is saying you need to fear the Lord. Do you know what fearing the Lord means? That's like this weird idea. Does that mean I'm simply scared of him? Fearing the Lord is this life rearranging all reverence and wonder at who God is and what he's done. You need to see the king and realize and be in awe and reverence because when you fear the Lord, you won't fear anything else. Anyone who's walked amongst like the redwood trees, are, they're not amazed when they see the little tree outside this, this multi-purpose room. Anyone who's ever been caught... I've been caught in the middle of a tiny little motorboat with this huge like storm around me. And because of that, I am not impressed with this like, little two-feet waves at the ocean. Anyone who's ever been to the Grand Canyon knows that you're not amazed and in awe when you go there and then you look at the little hill across the street from your house. And anyone who has ever seen the Lion of Judah suddenly realizes that things that you are intimidated by are not so intimidating. Anyone who has ever seen and been in presence of the king finds that everything else starts to lose control. What you need, what we need, is like get in the habit of You choosing to zoom out and then you zoom in to the character of God and you fix your eyes on Him. Zoom out. Get good at that. Because we become practical atheists throughout the week. We lose sight of who God is, which is why we need to be constantly thinking about Him. And we forget and then we get so caught up in this little thing and it becomes this huge thing. And instead of zooming out where you see the whole picture with God at the center of it where God is at the center of the equation. And if that's the case, I think there should be something where, like, I don't think it honors God when I'm so cynical, where I'm like such a pessimist, I overanalyze all these little things. But if God is God, I can't help but think to myself, shouldn't I be more of a risk taker? Shouldn't I like be willing to put myself out there and not be so afraid of failure? What's the worst that this world can do to me if the virgin birth is true? Shouldn't I see that? That God is my refuge, God is my strength. I doubt cynics will do much for Christ. Because they only take up tasks that they are big enough for. But we never take up God-sized tasks. Here's how the world, I'll end with this, will deal with fear, how they'll try to zoom out. In Isaiah chapter uh, uh, chapter 40, you see God, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. You see God send out a message to the coastlands: Come be part of my people, to the Gentiles. Come be part of my people. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will be your God. And it says, The coastlines have been afraid and are, I have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. And everyone helps his brother and neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong or be courageous. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Here's how typically, and this is how the world would want us to respond to fear, to anxiety. Look to each other and tighten up or nail down your idols, nail down your gods, nail down your 401k, nail down these plans for the future, nail it all down, because those things tend to fall, but if you just nail it down, then you won't be afraid. And so they look around, they try to huddle together for strength. Here's how God says his people should respond. But when, oh, and then talking about the idols in verse 28 through 29, I forgot. These things are empty wind. They're not real counselors. They will not stay steady. They are not strong. They are not a refuge from the storm. They are not rocks. They are not fortresses. Their metal images are nothing, they are all delusions. They give you the perception that you are in control. But control is it's an illusion. Isaiah 41 verse 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. For you fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will hold you from underneath. I will be on your side. I will be above you. I will be in you. And so, so a better translation of "Do not be dismayed." Don't. Look anxiously to other gods I am with you fear not and that's why Joshua 1 9 be strong and courageous for I am with you that's why when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death you will be afraid you will have fear. There's no such thing. We're going to have fear because we are incomplete. We're still in process. You're going to have fear, but will you overcome that fear by realizing, Lord, you are with me? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me in your rod, and your staff. They come for me. That imagery of shepherd is actually, you could actually argue that that verse, we always talk about the good shepherd, but there's a lot of kingly imagery there. that God, the King, is with us. <sighs> I find myself so afraid at times. What I need most is to see God. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in a moment of crisis where you need to see the King. And you need to see He's high and exalted. He's holy and holy, holy. And yet, he has poured out his grace upon you. This is the process. See the king. See yourself. See his grace. And then serve him. For he is worthy. He is the king. Let's pray. Father, we're so blind where our vision of you is so blurry, and that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants to blind us to the glory of Christ and the gospel. Help us to see, open up the eyes and ears of our hearts. God, when we are afraid, may we talk and think about you. Lord, if there's anything in our lives where we're holding back right now, where we're not wanting to serve you, God, show us your glory. Show us who you are. Help us to zoom out of our circumstances and to see you. God, I pray that this church, when we think of you, we'll have reverence when we sing we'll have reverence but we'll also sing with gladness move in our hearts and our minds our bodies our wills and Lord we want to give you true worship today help us God we need you In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, About 780 years after the prophecy of Isaiah, the temple would again shake. And this time there would be a man on a cross. But this man was a man of clean lips. There was no deceit found in him. And he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But no angel was going to come by to save him. That's because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to take the penalty, to pay the penalty for our sins. And the reason Isaiah can say and receive the forgiveness of God is the same reason we can receive the forgiveness of God. Our sins have been atoned for. His love and mercy and grace towards you is transcendent. And so we're going to take communion now to remember that and recognize that's not something that just casually drops into our lives. That's something where God's glory has been revealed most clearly through His cross. And so if you're a believer, I want to invite you to take some time to pray experience we're not we've already been forgiven but what we need to do every day on a daily basis is face up to our sins say to god forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and you re-experience that forgiveness you live it again you don't forget it and so as you take from the bread and the wine you remember that christ the holy king the holy king came and his body was broken for you And his blood was shed. He is a lamb that was slain. If you're not a believer, but this is a time where you want to put your faith in Christ, if you've seen the King, you've seen your sin, you've seen his grace, then you are invited to join us and take part in communion. If you're not a believer, I would ask that you simply observe. Take some time now. Let's think about the sacrifice of our Holy King. And then I pray that we will sing in response to that. Take some time to pray.